So today's Bible study is entitled, Becoming a Great Woman. Now we've looked in the past at some of the things that we can learn about that are appropriate for men. And today we're going to be focusing on ladies. Now the example we're going to be taking is taken from the book of 2 Kings chapter number 4. Now before I get too far into this, I don't want the men to go to sleep. Just as the Bible study we had before was intended to be one for men, about men, there was considerable overlap in terms of what a lady might be able to glean from it as well. And the same is true here. While men and women are obviously different in many, many ways, there are, of course, many ways in which we're similar. And so there are things that will pertain to every, everyone here in many respects. So I do pray that the men will pay attention as well, because there are things that you can learn and glean. And of course, men also have women in their lives. And so this may be an opportunity for you to pass along a little helpful information in the right manner that might be an exhortation to ladies in your lives who are important, whether they be wives or daughters or others. <clears throat> so in examining what it takes to be a, a really solid biblical woman, there's a lot of different directions to go. And we could spend an awful lot of time, far more than one Bible study here today. But I decided to look for an example of a, a great lady in Scripture that is uh, not as well known. So I did not select Rebecca, and I did not select Rachel, and I did not select uh, Sarah, and I did not select Mary, the mother of Jesus. I, I tried to select someone who is uh, evidently a very great woman, yet not well known. And this will be our jumping off point in the first portion of our lesson. <clears throat> so I would encourage you now to open up your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter number 4. You're going to need to do that. So please do. Please follow along. You're going to need to open up to 2 Kings chapter 4. This will be where our primary text is from. And this is the, where we're going to find the lady we will examine. Now it's quite clear that biblically excellent men are necessary to lead a godly society. We must have excellent men. But we also need women of high quality in order to sustain a society. And without women of high quality, the men are going to be lost. So there are examples, of course, that women can look to to acquire some of the more, most essential features that God would have in a lady. So that's what we're looking at. Can we identify a few of the most essential features from Scripture? Now, in, in giving this Bible study today, I feel a little bit inadequate. So I think that in some respects, because I'm a man, and because I am not necessarily have ever been a ladies' man per se, I'm not sure I understand women very well, despite the fact that I had a mother, I had a lot of sisters, I've got daughters, and I've got a wife. You'd think I ought to know a lot about women, but I don't necessarily feel like I do. So no doubt this Bible study will be given in a very clumsy fashion. However, I do like to read books. And so, I have consulted a number of, of, of books that were written by ladies, about ladies, and for ladies. And so, in addition to my own study, I am taking a little bit of advice from ladies, about ladies, for ladies, that I hope will be useful. So, what, what I've got for you today is not simply um, only me, you know, just, just shooting off my... Uh, off the top of my head, just shooting off my, 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 my lips here, but also uh, the gleanings from other 
ladies who are presumably and hopefully wise in this area. Now, this story, as we get into it in 2 Kings chapter 4, has two very powerful personalities. One is exceedingly well known. One is Elisha, one of the great prophets of the Old Testament. In fact, many would consider Elisha perhaps the greatest of the Old Testament miracle workers. A man whose miracles are legendary. Indeed, a man who at one point even shot fireballs at someone he didn't care for. Doesn't that sound pretty impressive? Now, the other powerful personality, though, is this lady from a village that was in the territory of Issachar. Of course, Issachar is not one of the most well-known tribes, and it's a lady from the village of Shunem. Shunem is not well-known, and she is continuously in this story referred to simply as the Shunemite woman. But we have the better part of an entire chapter given over to an event and the development of this Shunemite woman. And it's an interesting story if you're not familiar with it. Now we're going to discover that this lady is the only female in the Bible who is called a great woman. There are a number of places where we have men who are described as great men. But near as I can tell, there is no other lady in the Bible who is called a great woman. Perhaps there are other women who could be called great. This is the only one. Some of the translations don't do very well in this particular area. As we begin to read in 2 Kings chapter 4, it refers to as a great woman. And the scribe who wrote down this book for us was, in my opinion, giving us a foretaste of the conclusion of the story by describing her at the beginning as a great woman. Other translations call her a wealthy woman or something of this nature. But if you really do a little bit of word study on the word great, it means a woman of high quality, uniquely high quality person, prominent, great, as, as if someone has a, does a, a good job at painting the barn, you say that's a great job, an excellent job. So this was a, an excellent lady, some lady who has some uniquely excellent qualities. And that's what we want to look at now. So without further ado, now that we're in 2 Kings 4, we're going to begin our story in verse number 8, and we're going to read to the end of the story, verse number 37. And then we're going to go back, and we're going to go through, and I'm going to draw some highlights. Now, I'm asking that everyone will read with me, will read with me. And uh, if you don't mind, if everyone who is capable of doing so, I'd like you, in honor of the word of, uh, hearing the Word of God, I'd like everyone to stand for the reading of 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 8 through 37. We're going to read responsively, 2 Kings chapter 4, 8 through 37. I'll begin with verse 8, you follow with verse 9, we'll continue on to verse 37. Shall we begin? And it fell on a day that Elisha passed to Shunem, where was a great woman. And she constrained him to eat bread. And so it was that as oft as he passed by, he turned in thither to eat bread. And she said unto her husband, Behold now, I perceive that was the of God, which passes 
backbives continually. Let us make a little chamber, I pray thee, on the wall, and let us set for him there a bed, and a table, and a stool, and a candlestick, and it shall be, when he cometh to us, that he shall turn in thither. And it fell on a day that he came in thither, and he turned into the chamber and lay there. And he said to Gehazi his servant, Call this Shunammite. And when he had called her, she stood before him. And he said unto him, Say now unto her, Behold, thou hast been careful for us with all this care. What is to be done for thee? Wouldest thou be spoken for to the king or to the captain of the host? And she answered, I dwell among mine own people. And he said, What then is to be done for her? And Gehazi answered, Verily she hath no child, and her husband is old. And he said, Call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the door. And he said, About this season, according to the time of life, thou shalt embrace a son. And she said, Nay, my Lord, thou man of God, do not lie unto thine handmaid. And the woman conceived and bare a son at that season that Elisha had said unto her, according to the time of life. And when the child was grown, it fell in a day that he went out to his father to the reapers. And he said unto his father, My head, my head. And he said to a lad, Carry him to his mother. And when he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her knees till noon and then died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, and shut the door upon him, and went out. And she called unto her husband, and said, Send me, I pray thee, one of the young men, and one of the asses, that I may run to the man of God, and come again. Wherefore wilt thou go to him today? It is neither new moon nor Sabbath. And she said, It shall be well. Then she saddled an ass, and said to her servant, Drive, and go forward, slack not thy riding for me, except I bid thee. So she went, and came into the man of God, to Mount Carmel. And it came to pass, when the man of God saw her afar off, that he said unto Gehazi his servant, Behold, yonder is that Shunammite. Run now, I pray thee, to meet her, and say unto her, Is it well with thee? Is it well with thy husband? Is it well with the child? And she answered, It is well. And when she came to the man of God to the hill, she caught him by the feet. But Gehazi came near to thrust her away. And the man of God said, Let her alone, for her soul is vexed within her, and the Lord hath hid it from me, and hath not told me. Then she said, Did I desire a son of my Lord? Did I not say, Do not deceive me? Then he said to Gehazi, Gird up thy loins, and take my staff in thine hand, and go thy way. If thou meet any man, salute him not. And if any man salute thee, answer him not again, and lay my staff upon the face of the child. And the mother of the child said, As the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. And he arose and followed her. Gehazi passed on before them, and laid the staff upon the face of the child, but there was neither voice nor hearing. Wherefore he went again to meet him, and told him, saying, The child is not awake. And when Elisha was come into the house, behold, the child was dead, and laid upon his bed. He went in, therefore, and shut the door upon them twain, and prayed unto the Lord. And, and he went up, and lay upon the child, put his mouth upon the mouth, 
and his eyes upon his eyes, and his hands upon his hands, and he stretched himself upon the child, and the flesh of the child waxed warm. He came and walked in the house to and fro, and went up and stretched himself upon him. And the child sneezed seven times, and the child opened his eyes. And he called Gehazi and said, Call this Shunammite. So he called her. And when she was come in unto him, he said, Take up thy son. Then she went in and fell at his feet and bowed herself to the ground and took up her son and went out. Thank you very much. You may be seated. This chapter describes actually four different miracles of Elisha. This is the, probably the most impressive of these four miracles in which the power of God through Elisha, brought a young child or, 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 or a young man, a, a boy of unknown age, brought him back to life after he was dead. So what can we glean out of this? I'd like to just call your attention now as we try to just, just, just pull out of the text as much as we reasonably can about this unknown lady, this Shunammite woman. And there's more here than what first meets the eye. First of all, if we go back to the beginning of the story, how it begins in verses 8 through 10, you'll notice a couple of things. You'll notice that this lady recognized that Elisha was mighty in spirit, and it appears that her husband did not. And she proposed to her husband, and she got her husband's permission, she proposed that they build a small room and actually add on to their house so that Elisha could stay with them. Now, this tells us something about this lady. It tells us that she was deeply spiritually minded. It tells us that she had a great desire to have to cultivate proximity to Elisha. She wanted to be near the prophet. She wanted the prophet to be near her. She wanted to make it easy for Elisha to come to her home. She wanted that prophet's presence. She was interested in close proximity to this great spiritual man. And without denigrating her husband, because there's nothing really in this text that tells us that her husband was somehow notably deficient, we do see in contrast, though, with a close reading, that this lady was notably remarkable and that she seemed to be the one who is more spiritually attuned and the one who is the active in, in a spiritual manner. So that's the first thing we want to observe. She recognized that Elisha was mighty in spirit and she wanted to be near him. Next, as we continue on, and we look at some following verses, if we read again verses 8 and 9 and 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, and we read on down to 15 and 16, the first portion of this as it develops, we're going to see that Elisha, over time, said, hey, look, I'd like to reward this lady. I would like to reward her. And so he called her in. Now, he didn't say, I want to reward the husband. He said, I want to reward her. He wanted to reward this lady because Elisha recognized the unique and excellent value of this woman. And so she had certain feminine qualities that Elisha wanted to reward. Now, the feminine qualities that I see and I think are worthy of noting are as follows. Number one, Elisha called her in. 
he called her in. It says in verse 12 that Elisha said to, this, the, to Gehazi, his servant, send for this woman. And then it says that she, she came right in. Now this means that she was obedient. This lady was an obedient woman. She was obedient to authorities. Now that's an important feminine quality. And it's a, it's a quality that is not something that anyone should look down upon. Anyone who is obedient in life, that is a good virtue. If you think, oh, uh, you know, if I want to be a great person, I want to be given all the orders and I don't want to have to take any. That is a very poor personal quality. Everyone needs to be obedient to their authorities. Even those who hold quite a bit of authority need to be obedient to those that are above them. And she understood this. And so she came right away when Elisha did this. So we're going to have some verses that are interspersed. So if our reader would like to read for us now, Titus 2, chapter, no, Titus chapter 2, verse 5, this is going to remind us that the importance of ladies being obedient. Titus chapter 2, verse 5. To be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. All right, second, another good quality. We discover that this lady's life was full of unsolicited good works. Good works. It tells us in verse 13 that Elisha said to her, You have been careful for us with all this care. I've been visiting in your home regularly. And you've been taking care of me all these many weeks, months, maybe years. We don't really know how long, but for a long time had passed. And you've been doing all these wonderful and excellent things. You've been taking care of me. So she was filled with unsolicited good works. Good work. Now, unsolicited means unrequested. <laughs> unrequested good works. Those are the ones that count. So if we could have a verse from the New Testament be read. This is 1 Timothy 5.10. This is going to tell us how important this virtue is as a feminine virtue, feminine quality. 1 Timothy 5, verse 10. Well reported of for good works, if she have brought up children, if she have lodged strangers, if she have washed the saints' feet, if she have relieved the afflicted, if she have diligently followed every good work. Next, our Shunammite lady. If we look closely at the text, we're going to discover that she was self-effacing. She was without private ambitions beyond her home. Self-effacing. Self-effacing, basically, I guess I could have just said humble. She was humble. And she did not have ambitions beyond her home. Now, how do I see that? Look at verse 13 a little more closely. What did Elisha offer to her? In verse 13, Elisha said, What's to be done for you? What can I do for you as a reward? Would you like to be spoken of to the king? Would you like me to introduce you to the king? Wow, Elisha had connections. Or to the captain of the host. Would you like me to speak to one of the great commanders about you? Who Would you like me to introduce you to the powerful people of the land? And what did she say? She said no. She said... I dwell among my own people. I know where my home is. I know where I've been planted. I know where my place is. And I know that my place is my home among my own people in my own little village 
here, this is where I belong, and I am pleased to remain right here. So our reader now will read about this particular virtue. 1 Peter 3.1 describes the, this self-effacing, humble quality that the Shunammite woman possessed. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that, if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. Let's go to item number four. The next thing we find, she was content. She was content in her present condition. Verse number 16. Verse 15 and 16. Recall, she did not ask for the son. It was suggested. Now, we don't know a lot about her husband either. It tells us that he was old. So apparently there was an age gap between this lady, who was of childbearing age, and her husband, who was old. And Gehazi, the servant, noticed this. He said, look, you know, she's like, probably a lot of women would like to have a child. Well, she doesn't have a son. So what can we do here? And so, the prophet, without asking her, said, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. This will be your reward. And he says, about this time next year, you're going to have a son. And her response was interesting. She said, nay, my Lord, thou man of God, do not lie unto thine handmaid. What did she mean by that? I don't think she was really intentionally, I don't think she was really saying, look, you're a liar. And I know that cannot come true. She was simply saying, look, this is something, I, I, I'm not requesting this. Yes, you're gonna, you say that's what's going to happen. I'm okay without a son. I'm okay. It's all right. I don't need it. It's not what I'm after. I didn't do all these things to get a reward. She was content. Content in her present condition. So our reader will now read a verse in, from the New Testament in Hebrews that speaks to this. Contentment. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. Let your conversation be without covetousness, and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. So these are four important feminine qualities that this Shunammite lady had. She was obedient to authorities. Her life was filled with unrequested, unsolicited good works. She was humble, self-effacing. She was pleased to stay in her place at home. And she was content in her present condition, which at that time was childless. Now, let's move on, though. Time passes. It tells us in verse 18, when the child was grown. Yet, at the same time, later on, it refers to him as, as a, we get the sense that he's still a boy. So, let's just speculate. It doesn't tell us. Let's just speculate and say he's... 11, 12, 13 years old, old enough to go and work, not old enough to be an independent man. So years later, tragedy strikes. And let's look at how everyone responds. The boy is working with his father. They have some sort of problem that emerges out in the field. Doesn't tell us what happened exactly. He just says, my head, my head. If we were to speculate, probably he got perhaps overheated. 
Maybe he had a heat stroke, a sunstroke. We don't really know. It doesn't really say, but something like that is very plausible. They're out in the hot sun harvesting, and he gets a, a powerful headache or something of this nature, and he, he's clearly in, in trouble. So the father has enough wisdom and sense to send him somewhere. So he says, take him back to his mother. I don't know why the father didn't carry him himself, but he says, take the boy back to his, his mother. Perhaps the father didn't think it was grave enough to warrant that. So, comes back to his mother. The mother does his best to comfort him, but the child perishes. Now, what's interesting is the response of this lady. Now, I want you to look closely at the responses of this woman over the next several verses as we analyze this a little bit more closely. One of the things that I think is most important, most important, years later when tragedy struck, she did not fall apart emotionally. This is not a woman who collapsed and fell on the ground and her emotional response was to flail and weep uncontrollably and scream and holler or shake her fist at the sky or shake her fist at her husband or fall apart in any way. None of that happened. Instead, she took decisive action right away. Her husband appears to be passive in the entire whole situation. As the situation unfolds, he appears to be very passive about the whole situation. I don't know why. I'm not necessarily here to criticize him, but he seems to be remarkably inactive, whereas she is decisive and takes decisive, excellent action. And you see that. She called to her husband. She said, get one of the young men with an ass. I've got a trip I've got to make. I want to go to the man of God. And his response was, well, why would you want to do that? That's what he says. It's not the Sabbath day. It's not a new moon. It's not a special day. Why would you run off to him? Again, I think he's a man who's not, not well connected. Not well, he didn't, didn't understand Elisha. She did. He didn't perceive the value of the prophet. She did. And so here he is. I don't really understand what my wife is up to, but he doesn't seem to protest. So, with her husband's permission, they get themselves the animal that they need, and off they go. And she tells the servant accompanying him, accompanying her rather, go fast, let's get there as quickly as possible. Slack not. So off they go to the prophet and the prophet's resident residence in Mount Carmel. Now I think it's pretty important that as they approach, I want you to notice that her decisive, self-controlled, um, keeping it together, that she maintains that. Because when they approach Mount Carmel, the first person that she encounters is not the prophet himself, but the prophet's servant, Gehazi. So Gehazi is sent out to meet the lady. And Elisha says to his servant, Oh, I see that this woman from Shunem's coming. Go out there and ask her how she's doing. Is everything okay at home? So she approaches Gehazi 
And when Gehazi says, is everything okay? Is everything going well with your family? How's your husband? How's your son? What does she say? She says something that is unexpected. She said, it's well. It's well. Everything's going fine. Everything's well. But I need to see the prophet. Now, that's a little bit of a surprise, and I'm still trying to understand why she decided not to tell Gehazi. But all I can think of is this, is that she had a sense that she needed to talk to the prophet, and it was to the prophet, it was to the man that had the spiritual connection, that was the one she needed to talk to, and she was not a, did not desire to spill her guts, to lay out the whole problem to someone who was couldn't do anything about it. He couldn't do anything about it. She knew he couldn't do anything about it. And she knew that that would just simply be a waste of time and energy and a lot of emotional fall for all for nothing. So she says, look, everything's okay, but I do need to see the prophet. So she makes her approach. And when she does meet the prophet now, we're down to verse 27, we see that her she, she's very eager to get, get her uh, the attention of Elisha. So, so far, we see that she was remarkably self-controlled under extreme emotional distress. Now, I think that's a virtue. Now, there is sort of a Victorian, and, and reader, if you'd get ready to read that verse in 2 Timothy for us, please. There is sort of a Victorian notion, going back about 100 years ago, that men ought to be very self-controlled, stiff upper lip, but women ought to be an emotional basket case. They emphasize that. In fact, it was considered a feminine virtue if they fainted. Remember the old smelling salts you had to carry around? Had to keep in your pocket in case a lady fainted. Well, women were supposed to faint. They were supposed to fall apart. I think the, that Victorian notion that emphasized the differences between the genders maybe went a little bit too far in the sense that they expected, encouraged, fostered, and wanted women to fall apart. They wanted them to faint and flutter and be useless. I don't see that in Scripture, and I don't see that in this story. And frankly, from a practical point of view, that's not the kind of lady I want at my side. When there's a, t a crisis, someone who's just going to collapse and make the problem worse. Because now I have two problems. I have the original one, and I have a fainted woman at my feet. Rather, I would prefer a lady like this, who maintains her cool, maintains her emotional reserves, and is of some usefulness and value, like this lady. So read for us 2 Timothy 1.7, if you would, please. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power, and of love, and of a sound mind. Now, the sound mind is worth exploring in the Greek because that's actually one Greek word and it essentially means emotionally self-controlled. The sound mind is, is, is someone who is, who's, whose brain does not freak out when there's a problem because you have a sound mind. Now, let's continue a little further. She approaches Elisha. Now, her approach to Elisha was very, very direct. And she repeats a conversation that they'd had years ago. And in verse 28, she says, the first thing she says to him, Did I desire a son of my Lord? Did I ask for this son? Did I come and beg to you? 
Did I come and implore you and say, please give me a son? Did I not present myself to you and give you the impression that I was content with my status? But you insisted on giving me this son. And now, look at the situation. He's dead. Now that's pretty blunt talk. Pretty blunt talk to a powerful prophet. But the prophet did not become angry with her. Now there are times in our lives <laughs> when we need to speak directly. And I think that in this particular case, the lady was very direct, and I think that was good. I think it was right, and I think it was proper, and I think it, 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 it laid everything right out on the table when she said, listen, here we are, I haven't been blubbering to anybody else, but I'm telling you that I didn't ask for this, and now I've got a problem, and I think you're the only man that can help me. And so I'm, now I'm asking for your help. It was very direct speech. Now, we can get ourselves all tangled up in our conversations. Direct speech is not an excuse to be rude. It's not an excuse to shout. It's not an excuse to be angry. It's not an excuse to have abusive language. But direct speech at the right moment at the right time, face to face, is of great value. And we have a verse on that from the New Testament, if you'd like to read that for us. Just to remind us that direct speech is good. Matthew chapter 5, verse 37. But let your communication be, yea, yea, nay, nay, for whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. Now as we continue in the story, and we look to learn more and more about this child, and about this woman, and about Elisha, we find in verse 29 that the prophet sends Gehazi with a staff off to the boy right away. So off scampers the servant as fast as he can go to the lady's home. But the mother doesn't go. This lady says to the prophet, I'm not leaving you. She perceived that Gehazi was not a special person. Gehazi would probably not accomplish a thing. And she was persistent. She was determined not to be put off. And so she says in verse 30, As the Lord liveth and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. It's not good enough for you to send your servant. You have to come. And I'm not leaving you unless you come with me. You and I are going to go together. So she was persistent. She wouldn't be put off. There's a great story in the New Testament, we won't take the time to read it, in the Gospel of Luke about a widow who is persistent in her prayer and persistent to a judge. And the judge finally gave her what she wanted. And that was the, uh, used as an illustration about how we should be persistent in our prayers before our Father in Heaven. Well, finally, we know how the story comes to an end. So if we go back over the verses, Gehazi arrives, the staff does nothing, Elisha and the mother arrive, and Elisha takes the boy, he, he contacts the boy, and physically contacts him, and it, it describes all that, and finally the boy comes back to life again. Sneezes seven times and comes back to life. Let's go on with the woman now, and jump to the very end of the story in verse 37. If you look at verse 37, it's interesting. <clears throat> the prophet says to the woman in verse 36, 
take up thy son. But she doesn't. In verse 37, we see it says, Then she went in, fell at his feet, bowed herself to the ground, and then took up her son. Before she rushed over to her son, she expressed her gratefulness to the prophet. She expressed her profound gratefulness to the prophet by bowing to him first. Now that's how I read this text, is that before she rushed to her son's bedside to see if he really was alive, she knew that he was alive, and she knew her first duty was to show her gratefulness to the prophet. Now, this tells that this lady had a lot of positive qualities that were action-oriented. And that's good. Now, in Hebrews 11, we have a great chapter of faith. Now, in Hebrews 11, in fact, we actually read this passage this morning. I might call your attention to Hebrews 11, verse 35. And we look at the famous chapter on faith in which many people are mentioned as being people of great faith, Abraham and Joseph and Isaac and Abraham and the Rahab the harlot and Samson and so forth and so on, all these people. And in verse 35, there's a reference. It says, women received their dead raised to life again. Now, most commentators in chapter number 11, verse 35 of the book of Hebrews tell us that they believe that reference in that verse is referring to this woman who received her son raised to life again at the hand of Elisha and another lady who received her son raised to life again at the hand of the prophet Elijah. These two women are mentioned as women of great faith. So what makes this lady great? Why is she great? Why should we bother remembering this story or take any note of this woman at all? I believe the answer is because she was her, a, a lady of great faith. Great faith. That's what made her a great woman. And that is, ladies, what you should aspire to, to be a woman of faith. If you would like to be a great woman, if you'd like to be an excellent model, if you'd like to be a woman of great value to God, to your family, to your community, to your church, to everyone that knows you, you want to aspire to be a woman of faith. And we have this lady as an excellent example. Now, let's go to the second portion of our lesson. And we're going to have to pick up the pace a little bit. It turns out that there are certain qualities that women sometimes bring forth that are rather incompatible with the virtue of faith. There's at least four problem areas. Now, these are problems not necessarily only for ladies. But these are four problem areas that are incompatible with faith to which women are especially prone. Women are especially prone in these problem areas. So I'd like to discuss these problem areas, these four problem areas, these areas that work against being a lady of faith and a few ideas about what can be done how to curb these areas, and how to overcome these potential failure areas. So let's begin. The first great area that is incompatible with faith, to which women are prone, and some men, men to a lesser degree perhaps, but that's this one. Failure to understand 
that God is always sovereign in your life. Failure to understand that God is always sovereign in your life. Now, the sovereignty of God is a doctrine that I believe is generally neglected. It is easy for all of us, and pretty much all Christians will say, Oh, I believe in the sovereignty of God. But I think actually most Christians don't believe in the sovereignty of God. They believe that sovereignty, the all-power quality that God's in complete control, that sovereignty they actually believe resides somewhere else. Most Christians do not ascribe God as being all-sovereign. Someone else, somewhere else, is all-sovereign, but not God. Now women, because they often feel like they control very little about their life, are going to find this more difficult. Now men tend to feel like they have a little more control over their lives than women do. Men have often more financial resources at their fingertips. Men often have greater strength when there's problems that involve moving this or fixing that. Men can say, oh, I can do that. And they go out there and grapple away. But women are, are, are unable to do some of those things. And so women often feel like they're pulled hither and yon. And they don't really have much control in their life. And so it's hard for them to reconcile that sense that I don't really control a lot that's going on in my life with the idea that God is sovereign and someone's in control and it's God that's in control. Now that can all be overcome. Now it's not going to be overcome by a woman saying to herself, well, I'm going to take control. That's sort of that, the old feminist spirit which is contrary to Scripture. It's going to be more overcome by an understanding and leaning upon the sovereignty of God. So we've got to move quickly here, but there's three quick points I'm going to make. Number one, God knows all of your circumstances. So ladies, always remember that, that God always knows all of your circumstances. He knows everything about you and everything about the challenges that you face. Number two, God has a purpose in all things. There's a very well-known verse, Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good. It is well-known, well-quoted, off-quoted, and it's an excellent Bible passage. Very excellent. But I don't know that all of us really believe it very well. But we should. God has a purpose in all things. Number three, when you're tested, your focus should be on Christ. And this is an important principle. So if our reader would read from Hebrews chapter number 12, the first two verses... This follows right upon Hebrews 11, describing all the heroes of the faith. Now, when you're tested, you need to try to remain and keep your focus on Christ. Go ahead. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. <clears throat> Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witness, witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Thank you. All right, let's hasten on to our second area. The first area, of course, is women uh, failing to understand that God is always sovereign. Now, this second one's a big one. 
this is probably one of the greatest areas of challenge for ladies, and many men too, and that is this. Failure to curb your anxiety and fear. Failure to curb your anxiety and your fear. Now, fear typically motivates women more than men. That's not universally true, but I think it's typically fair to say. Now, to defeat anxiety and fear, there are a few things that we can talk about. Three points I'd like to throw out at you. Are you ready? First one, it's this business about what other people think. Now, the, the thing that should be foremost in your mind when you are afraid of this or afraid of that is you need to consider first what God thinks of you. What does God think of you? What does God think of what you're doing? What does God think of what you're saying? What does God think about your choices? That's the first thing you should think. Second, next you should think about what your trusted advisors might think about what you're doing. Who are your trusted advisors? Well, hopefully you do have people around you that you can trust. If you're married, it would be your spouse. Close friends who have been with you for many, many years. I would say those that know you, have known you a long time are going to give you the better advice than more recent friends. Perhaps your parents, perhaps your grown children, I don't know. You should find out what they think about your choices. What you really shouldn't do is pay attention to what people say about behind your back. Because what people say behind your back will pass. It always passes. Now for ladies, this is sometimes very difficult to do. They're very worried about what other people are going to say about them. They know that others are talking about them. And that really concerns them. What are they going to think? What are they going to say about me? Well, you need to be worried about what God thinks. You need to be worried about those your close, trusted advisors may think. Everyone needs wise counselors. But I don't think you need to worry a great deal about what everybody's going to think and say behind your back. If they've got enough courage to come and say it to your face, listen. And if they don't, don't worry about it. Because it's going to pass. You see, those are gossipers. And you know what gossipers are going to do? They're going to move on. Gossipers will soon move on. There will soon be a more fertile story for them to explore and chat about. And they will not be gossiping about you on and on and on and on because they're moving on. There's something else. There's someone else to talk about now. And you'll be relatively soon forgotten. <clears throat> and all of us are going to be there. All of us are going to have events in our life that overtake us, that fill us with fear and anxiety. We've got a choice to make. We don't know what to do. We're trying to figure it out. Fret not about what everybody says. What does God think about what you ought to do? What do your trusted advisors think about what you ought to do? And everybody else, if they don't have the courage to come to you and speak to you face to face, then just count that opinion as not worthy because they're soon going to be moving on to talk about somebody else behind their back. Now, that's a, this is a difficult area. It's a challenging area, but it's an important one. <clears throat> well, we don't have time for a verse on that. We've got to go to the second one. So we're dealing with failure to curb anxiety and fear. The second thing you can do, delight in God's presence when fear rises up in you. Delight in God's presence. 
Now, there was a famous book written, I think, about 500 years ago. It's called The Practice of the Presence of God. Now, think about that title, The Practice of the Presence of God. The title itself has a powerful message that we ought to be practicing, we ought to be doing our best to sense that God really is present with us rather than just glibly moving on in life, feeling like we're alone and assuming that we're alone, rather than assuming that God is not with us and guiding us. So delight in God's presence when you sense fear rising up in you. Third, and this is an act of love. Now, 1 John 4.18 tells that perfect love casteth out fear. Now, the kind of love that casts out fear is not really an emotion. And it says, acts of love, it turns out, these are what dispels fear. Now, what is an act of love? An act of love is when you serve God and others. That's an act of love. It takes an act of love, not a feeling of love, an act of love casts out fear. You say, serving God and others. Well, let's see, hmm, who would that be? Well, an act of love isn't something you'll ever get a reward from. So I would say... Serving yourself is not an act of love. Serving your spouse? I guess that's an act of love, but it's not as good an act of love as serving others that cannot reward you. Because you may be serving your spouse with the thought that, well, if I'm nice to him, he's going to be nice to me. A real act of love is serving someone who cannot reward you. That is an act of love. And that kind of an act of love is going to cast out fear. Serving your children, that's good. But your children may reward you. Are you willing to serve someone who cannot reward you? That is an act of love. That kind of action casts out fear. And that's what we have with this lady. The Shunammite lady was filled with acts of love, with no expectation or anticipation of reward. Next, that's an important area as well. We do have to move quickly here. <clears throat> Time is clicking along. The third area, failure to control the tongue, which women rely on more than men. Failure to control the tongue, which women rely on more than men. I think it's a generally true statement that women rely on the use and rely on conversation more than men. And why is that true? Again, men are strong, physically strong, and can grapple and solve with practical problems. The tire needs change so they can go do it, whereas a lady probably can't. So she has to try to solve the problem by conversation. She has to ask someone to change the tire because she can't do it. Men usually have more financial resources, and so when a problem they encounter comes along, they open their wallet and they solve the problem by purchasing this and doing that. Women are typically less able to do that. So women turn to try to solve problems through conversation, through talking. They use the tongue. And of course, women have excellent conversational abilities. And that's fine, that's good. That's excellent. That's wonderful. It tells the conversation of the women can be very useful. It tells us that in the New Testament. They can win their husbands over. 
Now, but it can be a huge problem area. Failure to control the tongue works mightily against acts of faith. It works mightily against the principle of faith. And here's how. Let's go through this rather quickly. Wrong words begin with wrong thoughts. Wrong words begin with wrong thoughts. Now, a wrong thought that is not expressed in words is not as damaging as a wrong thought that is expressed in words. But the real root of the problem, of course, is the thoughts. And Scripture has plenty to say about us controlling our thoughts. Second, God knows other people's motives, and you don't. You do not know other people's motives. It is highly tempting, and I can't tell you how many conversations I've heard among women, and sometimes men, who really want to figure out why a person did that. They're not content with just what they did. They want to know why. They want to dig into the motives. And that is a very dangerous thing. Because now you're trying to be the, the psychologist-in-chief. You're trying to really dig into an area that is very much unknown and difficult to ascertain. Human beings are complicated with multiple motives that often motive cause them to do something. And which one is at the forefront, you don't necessarily know. And it may take a lot of figuring out here. But people are too quick to judge motives. Now, Scripture tells us that God understands the thoughts and the reins of the heart, but you don't, and I don't. And this is extremely dangerous territory, because it, it, when you move into the motives, now you make assumptions. And those assumptions then grow and spill out, sometimes, in your conversation. And it can be highly destructive. And so failure to control the tongue, beginning with your thoughts and trying to figure out what somebody else is thinking can really create a, a great deal of damage. Now, it tells us in Colossians chapter 3 something that's rather important. It will have to pass on reading that because of the short amount of time. But I'll just tell you this much. Wrong words are put off by an act of the will. Wrong words are put off by an act of the will. Now, the word put off in the New Testament is often used in a way it's describing it as this clothing. You put off your jacket and you put on another one. It's an act of the will. You just choose to do it. And that's what's happening here. The wrong words, you put them off. You just, you just choose to restrain your speech. It's a critically important area. Now, we'd better read these. So if our reader would open up the book of Proverbs, chapter 16. This one is sort of counterintuitive to many of the euphemisms and the way we operate in life. But it's biblically true, I do believe. Sweet and kind words are more effective than harsh words. Sweet and kind words are more effective than harsh words. Now, we tend to think, oh, well, the squeaky wheel gets the grease, right? If I make a lot of noise with harsh words, I'll get what I want. Well, you might in the short run, but in the long run, it undermines your entire relationship 
and the entire goal that you're trying to achieve. Harsh words do not take you really where you want to go. Harsh words only might get you a very short-term gain at a very long-term cost. So if our reader could read these three passages in Proverbs for us to help us understand that the, the value of sweet and kind words that ladies ought to cultivate, men too, but especially ladies, cultivate sweetness and kindness rather than harshness. Go ahead. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 21. The wise in heart shall be called prudent, and the sweetness of the lips increaseth learning. Proverbs 25, 15. By long forbearing is a prince persuaded, and a soft tongue breaketh the bone. Proverbs 31, 26. She openeth her mouth with wisdom, and in her tongue is the law of kindness. So Proverbs 31 tells us that this ideal lady there has a law of kindness out of her mouth. And Proverbs 25:15 told us that a soft tongue breaks the bone. A soft tongue. So sweet and kind words are more effective than harsh words. So ladies, uh, an important area that works against faith is failure to control the tongue. Now finally, the fourth area that's incompatible with faith that ladies need to really work on, and men as well, but this is especially important for women. Failure to avoid bitterness. Bitterness at disappointments. Life will have disappointments. It's important to avoid bitterness. Now, signs of bitterness in women are these. To a lesser degree, these are also true of men. But signs of bitterness in women are these. I've got three of them here. Are you ready? The first sign of bitterness is a judgmental attitude. A judgmental attitude. So you see, bringing down another person may make you feel better in the short run. But it's ultimately self-destructive. And it probably, if it continues, will destroy the relationship with the person that you're running down. So it's critically important that a judgmental attitude aimed at bringing someone down so that you don't feel lonely at the low place you think you are. Misery loves company, you know. Bringing someone down, that is not a wise strategy. It's dealing in bitterness, and bitterness works against faith. Second, brooding. Brooding on how you've been wronged. That, that's a neat word, isn't it? It, it? Think about that word. We don't hear it very often. Brood. B-R-O-O-D-I-N-G. Brooding. Now, that's a very destructive place to be. So what does it mean to brood? It means to retreat, be quiet, and be silent. But the worst part, there's nothing wrong with retreating and being quiet and silent. That may be good if you're thinking positive things. If you're meditating on the Word of God, that's wonderful. But brooding is when you retreat and you nurse all of the grievances that you have. And you rehearse them. And you think about how you've been wronged. And you go over them again in your mind or you mutter them under your breath. And you go over it and over it and you are brooding at how you've been wrong. It is an exceptionally destructive quality. 
And it is impossible to be a person of faith when you're brooding about how you've been wronged. And third, a vengeful spirit. A vengeful spirit. We must not have vengeful spirits. The idea of a vengeful spirit usually is justified as a self-defense mechanism, a self-defense strategy. Well, I've been stepped on once and that's never going to happen again. They're not going to do that to me again. I'm never going to go through that again. I'm going to make sure that doesn't happen to me again. That's a vengeful spirit. It's natural. It's, it's not surprising. But it's not good. It's self-destructive. And it leads to bitterness. And bitterness is an exceptionally destructive spirit that goes totally against a spirit of faith. All right, so we've looked now at these four areas. Four problem areas that are incompatible with faith, which women are especially prone. Number one, failure to understand that God is sovereign. Number two, failure to curb your anxieties and fears. Number three, failure to control the tongue. Number four, and last, failure to avoid bitterness. Now the Shunammite woman, she desired to be with spiritual people. She went to great lengths to be around Elisha. Do you desire, ladies, to be among spiritual people? Do you want to be around a spiritual person? The pe person that is mighty in spirit, and you know it, and everybody else knows it. Do you want to be around that person? Is that someone you want to cultivate a relationship with? If you do, that's excellent. If you're like, ah, oh, no, no, he's not my type. That's not a good sign. Not a good sign. Now, to try to summarize the, the, the qualities of the Shunammite woman and make them very brief and short, to me, a good summary is just to say this. This great woman demonstrated two qualities, humility and action. She was, she was a humble lady, very humble, modest lady, but also a lady of, of deeds, of, of action. Of, of, of worth and of value and usefulness, both in service and when needed, being able to make a decision. Now, do you demonstrate humility and action, ladies? That's not going to be an easy balance. But this lady did, I do believe. And finally, of course, do you avoid these problem areas that are incompatible with faith? So, <clears throat> we've reached our conclusion it is my hope and prayer that we can have as many ladies as possible become women of great faith and become like this unknown Shunammite lady. Unknown, we don't even know her name. We can also have women of faith among us. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for your time today. God bless you. How can I keep